Today's episode of The Rewatchables is brought to you by State Farm. Around here, we love talking about movies that we watch, rewatch, and watch again because they're just that good, with the recent exception of Draft Day. It's the thoughtful details, the little things other movies don't have that keep us coming back. When it comes to insurance, we can't get enough of State Farm. They have all the details we appreciate. They make insurance easy. Monitor your coverage, pay your bill, even file a claim through their app, which was awarded Best Insurance Mobile App 2019. And thanks to their network of 19,000 agents, you'll have someone local to walk you through options and help you choose a policy that meets your individual needs versus cookie-cutter coverage. Best of all, they give it to you straight. No gimmicks, no games, just guidance you can count on. It's a no-brainer. Go out and get the insurance you deserve. Get State Farm like a good neighbor. State Farm is there. Get a quote. Find an agent. StateFarm.com. We're also brought to you by TheRinger.com and The Ringer Podcast Network, where we're launching season one of Boom Bust. The Rise and Fall of HQ, it launches on May 20th. We have that going. We also have TV Concierge, which is exclusive on Spotify. We have Music Exists with Chris Ryan and Chuck Klosterman. Is that season over? It's done? That season is over and done. Season one is a wrap. Sean Fennessy has the big picture, which will eventually pivot into um, me just reading him articles from the 11 premier magazines <laughs> I bought from 1987 to 1988, which I is welcome tremendous. It. Yeah. It's great content. Coming up. Duck, you don't just walk into a store and buy plutonium. <laughs> Back to the future. Steven Spielberg and Robert Zemeckis bring you Back to the Magic. Are you telling me that you built a time machine out of a DeLorean? Back to the Fantastic. Back to the action. Whoa, this is heavy. Back to the past. It's an absolute dream. Take it from yourself. Back to the future. Michael J. Fox, Christopher Lloyd. To the future. Rated PG. Sneak preview tonight. Check newspapers. All right, Chris Ryan is here. Sean Fennessy is here. We are tackling Back to the Future. Getting a jump on this. The the 35th anniversary is coming up at the beginning of July, and we wanted to get ahead of it before a ton of content comes out. I sent you guys a list. I made a list of the 10 biggest non-comic book, non-animated movies of the last 40 years. So that rules out a lot. That rules out everything from The Lion King to Every Batman to The Avengers, Iron Man. These are just authentic original idea movies that people made that not only became massively uh, successful movies financially, not only movies that crossed over the pop culture, but movies that have just lived on. So here are my 10. It, it's a semi-particular order, but I'm willing to be talked out of it. Titanic, E.T., Back to the Future, Jurassic Park, Raiders of the Lost Ark, Ghostbusters, Forrest Gump, Home Alone, Pirates of the Caribbean, and Beverly Hills Cop, I had 10th, narrowly edging out Avatar. I think those were the most significant, influential popcorn movies of the last 40 years. What am I missing, Sean? From this list? Well, I think that we still are, we could split the atom even further. I don't know that we're missing anything. I think that there is a difference between a bunch of these movies, though, because Back to the Future falls in an even more rare category which is it's a completely original story. It's not based on a historical event. It's not based on a novel. Like if you look at Jurassic Park or Forrest Gump, these are movies that are based on novels. Titanic obviously is based on a true story. It's movies like E.T., 
and Ghostbusters and Home Alone and Back to the Future that are the rarest of rare things, which are mega successful movies with no precedent before them. That's just a crazy thing to think about because so many of the big movies we see now are they, they depend on a previously understood relationship to the material. What do you think, Chris? What was the algebraic equation you used to determine this? Was it just box office or was it cultural impact? I looked at the adjusted box office and then tried to factor in the cultural impact because I am old enough to remember when every one of these movies came out. And like to me, Titanic and E.T. are the top two because like when E.T. came out, I felt like that dominated all conversations for months. And it was just the biggest movie. Um, I, you know, Jaws was 1975, but that was a similar thing. I I only did the last 40 years there. Titanic was the same thing because Titanic had the whole year-long backstory of people saying it was going to be this huge bust. It was too expensive. What are they doing? Leo's in it. It had a lot at stake and then it delivered and people are just going back to see it over and over again. I think Back to the Future, that was a movie in the mid-80s, 1985, People went to see multiple times. That's a really hard list to get on of just like, I'm going back. What are you doing tonight? I'm going back to see Back to the Future. I thought you've already seen it three times. Yeah, I have. And then you just go again. And then the sequels and, you know, now now it's got the amusement park stuff and you just, this 35-year tale. It's incredible. Yeah, I was I was eight when this came out. I don't necessarily remember seeing it in the theater, but I remember it taking over American life in a lot of ways. It was like such a crucial cultural bonfire that everybody gathered around and every little spark that came from it, whether it was references to, you know, sodas that people were drinking, sneakers people were wearing, the way people were wearing jean jackets, skateboarding, music like Huey Lewis was like so pervasive it was omnipresent at the time to hear power of love like all the things that were in and around this movie just seemed to be every they they filled every quadrant of pop culture back then Pepsi too that was another one this was like the heyday of Pepsi with Michael Jackson and um yeah Michael J Fox Family Ties is a show it's an 80s show that has not had I think the the tale that a couple other shows from the 80s and 90s have had. But in my opinion, just being there in the moment, Family Ties and Cheers, and uh, it, those were really the, the the biggest two sitcoms for a little while there. Michael J. Fox was a massive star. And when he parlays the Family Ties, which was already massively successful with this movie at the same time, he becomes an A++++ lister to the point that Teen Wolf... Um, ended up having a rewatchable cable tale just because he was in it. It's not obviously not a good movie. I, I as much as we love it, but uh, that the Michael J. Fox piece of this, Sean, um, really hard to even point to anybody else who's been like him in the last fifty years. He's five foot five. He's a comic actor. You have to be able to believe him punching somebody who's six feet tall and having. Hot woman lust after him, which he was able to always pull off, um, just seemed like this authentic, funny, awesome actor. Like everybody was in on him. He had 100% approval rating. Yeah. And think about his life in 1985. Family Ties, one of the biggest shows in the world. And then as soon as the show concludes its season in June, Back to the Future comes out. And Back to the Future is the number one movie at the box office or the number two movie at the box office for nine consecutive weeks. It's just the sort of thing that in the middle of the summer, that just is never going to happen again. 
even yeah. in the age of Avengers, we're never going to have a movie be so dead set in the middle of the, the culture. And the only reason that it moves out of the one and two spot at the end of the summer, uh, uh, the weekend of August 23rd, is because E.T. was re-released three years later in 1985 and was the number one movie in the box office. Another thing that will never happen. We'll never have a movie that right. came out three years ago go back into theaters and become the number one movie. And E.T. is such an important part of this story in addition to Michael J. Fox because I don't. I think if E.T. is not this incredible phenomenon and doesn't set the template for all those movies you were talking about, Bill, I don't think Steven Spielberg has the juice to get Back to the Future made. That's such a big part of this story. He needed the perfect star, which they did not have at first, needed the perfect executive producer and shepherd, and then needed all the right creative people around it. It's really like a, it's a, it's a kind of a miraculous movie in a lot of ways. E.T.'s also got a lot of the DNA of Back to the Future in it in the sense that it has both elements of sci-fi and nostalgia in it, but is actually, for the most part, set in what was then pre- present-day suburbia, contemporary suburbia. And those movies, it's, it's very rare, actually, I feel like, that you see hugely successful movies that are capturing a moment in like American culture as they are happening. They're usually either nostalgic or they're or they're futuristic, but it's it's not it's not very common that you see a huge blockbuster. I mean, I guess it was more common in the 80s that's set for the most part. I mean, I know this is 1955 second act, but a lot of what drew people to Back to the Future was seeing suburbia on screen. So it's probably the latest you could have made this movie and gone back to the 50s. Because you remember the biggest show of the 70s was Happy Days. It was the number one show for years and years and even goes into the 80s and really runs through about 1983. But people like going backwards. And, you know, we also had a lot less entertainment choices back then. So even in the, you know, mid to late 70s and the early 80s, we don't have that many channels. We don't really have the VHS DVD scene is still far away. We don't have the internet. So you you ended up, you did watch a lot of old shows. So somebody like me who is, 15 when Back to the Future came out, I still had a real concept of what the 50s were like from all the different shows I watched, you know, or, or shows that I watched with my dad, things like that. I think once you got into the 90s, like I think Pleasantville is a good example. And Pleasantville, when they go back to basically some version of the 1950s, it seemed really far away. And now I think like if Back to the Future came out now in 2020, going back to the 50s, I don't even know if people would know what to do. It'd be like, you might as well go to like the 1890s. Like, it's like there's, people would have no connection with it all. But I do think that was really important for this. There's one other reason that that's true. What you're saying, Bill, is that it needed to be a time in which it could be far into the past, but also not so far that Christopher Lloyd needs to look exactly the same. You know, I mean, Doc Brown in 1955 and 1985 looks the same. Now, Christopher Lloyd, if you've seen him recently, also looks exactly the same. He's yeah. been 62 years old for 60 years. It's right. remarkable. So is Gene ha- him and Gene Hackman. Yes. <laughs> so it's that's a great call. Um, I think if you, we could talk later about what would this movie be like if you did it now, but the experience I would compare it to would be like if 30 years ago was... Um, 1990. If you went back to 1990, people would get it, but it wouldn't work because it wasn't really an era, right? You'd almost have to go back to like 1993. You would have to go back into like Gen X and grunge and have him land in Seattle. And even that wouldn't really work because it wasn't as identifiable. The 
the 1950s were just so wholesome. Like you get the ice cream shop and it's just like, oh yeah, I get it. I'm in the 50s. There's a movie theater. There's a drive-in. We're going to have a prom and it's all going to be innocent. People might make out in a car. Um, it's the perfect era for that. What else stands out about going backwards to you, Chris? Um, I think for the for this particular movie, they do something really, really smart, which is that they set it in this small town so that they can essentially do one-for-one replacements with everything. So it's so tight. If you go back, and the reason why it's it's so fun to rewatch is that you can see the different movie on the movie marquee. The the guy who's working at the diner who becomes the mayor, the guy who's the mayor who becomes the homeless guy. You know, all the de- like the sort of rise and fall of the suburbs that you can kind of watch through this movie. And also, you know, you can start to get into all the games that I'm sure we'll get into later in this podcast about like, okay, so if this happens, then doesn't that mean that this happens? Yeah. And and I think that's another reason why this movie succeeded when it came out in the biggest way you can succeed, but also had a tail. Because this was the 80s. You would sit in somebody's basement playing beer pong until four in the morning, arguing about stupid shit. Like who is better, bird or magic? Um, how did, how is Marty McFly in two, in the same place Yeah, in two different ways? Can you do that? Wouldn't that bend the law of physics? Well, wait a second. If he's nowhere else, then what happens to the, you, you would actually get into these arguments. Now you just have them on the internet. Now you're just on a message board. You find people, but Back then, these were things like we had like two hour conversations about. I Back to the Future led to so many arguments in my life about uh, <laughs> how conceivable this was, and you know what what would have happened if uh, Doc had had not done the lightning one second earlier? Would he have just crashed into the building? And there's all these what if variables that I think makes it really fun. Yeah, what if your mom was smoking hot and you went Back to the Future? Would you make out with her? <laughs> That's a big one. <laughs> Well, that uh, was that's basically how they conceived this movie, and, and you had Zemeckis, and you had um, you had uh, Bob Gale who wrote the. They worked together on used cars. They Bob Gale has this idea: would I have been friends with my dad if we had been in school together? And that eventually becomes the script that they write, and it just is getting rejected for years. Um, now, this was an era where you had the teen comedies. You had Fast Times and Porky's. There was a certain type of losing it. There's certain risky business. There's a certain type of comedy that was happening. This was too innocent. Studios keep rejecting it. They even pitch it to Disney, which is would have seemed like a logical home. And Disney's like, eh, the mother falling in love with the son. That's a little weird for us. We're going to pass. <laughs> so Zemeckis makes Romancing the Stone, which is a monster movie huge movie. Kathleen Turner is the biggest female star in the world coming out of that movie. And now he has the juice and he hooks up with his guy Spielberg. Spielberg blesses it and we're off. But it's amazing to me that people rejected this script for four years. Like it's the old William Goldman. Nobody knows anything. People are like, eh, cool idea. Eh. I, I To me, this would be if somebody pitched this in a room, it would be like the ultimate no-brainer, right? Yes, but I think a lot changed about the story before the movie was made. And I think that they made a couple of subtle but really important choices that after the movie was already on its way to being made that I think played a huge part in it. Like, I don't want to step too much on half-assed internet research, but if this movie was about a refrigerator that was a time machine, which was the original plan for this, and right. not a DeLorean, this just isn't, it's just not back to the future. It's just not 
this cultural phenomenon that it becomes. And they made all of these little subtle choices throughout the way of telling the story that 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 helped it become such a such a, a almost unprecedented success. Yeah. Also, Bill, the funny thing that you mentioned, Porky's and Fast Times, this movie has a little bit of that in there. You know, like I think that when I when I it's got a whiff. When I think of Bit Back to the Future, I just think of this kind of effervescent innocence and charm. It's pretty horny. You know what I mean? Like Marty definitely checks out girls' asses and um, is like really concerned about whether or not like he really just wants to go on dates and talk to girls. And it that stuff is like pervasive throughout the entire movie. So it has a little bit of that early 80s teenage sex, sex comedy, which probably gives it an edge that it otherwise wouldn't have if it was yeah, just about time travel. Where we end up is an unassailable premise of guy goes back to the future 30 years stumbles into his mom and his dad and inadvertently screws up their potential future together, which would then vaporize him. I, you know, I don't know if that's how it would play out. And I guess we could talk about that and probably answer my questions, but this movie made 381 million worldwide. Um, it won an Academy award for best sound effects, editing, two other nominations, highest grossing film at 85. It made 210 million just domestically the next two films were Rambo at 150 and Rocky IV at 127. The lesson is always Sly fucking Stallone. <laughs> Only three <laughs> movies make a hundred million bucks in 1985. He has two of them. Uh, the franchise, they end up with two sequels, an animated series, a theme park ride, several video games, a series of comic books, and a stage musical. Another underrated development here, Robert Zemeckis, who puts up Romance in the Stone and Back to the Future and Back to Back Years, which is ludicrous, does the other two Back to the Futures, makes Who Framed Roger Rabbit, which is a movie that has not aged well just because the animation isn't that good, but in the moment was a really inventive, successful, creative movie that did great. Uh, Death Becomes Her wasn't bad. Forrest Gump, one of, the, one of the 10 biggest movies of the last 40 years, as we just covered. Contact, hilariously bad. Uh, <laughs> I'm pro. You're pro. I'm. It's yeah. a good peanut gallery movie. I mean, I like. I like contact. Not like a shitload of sexual tension with Jodie Foster and Matthew McConaughey. I'm just, just, just a well, McConaughey stiff. plays like a, a like a religious scholar, isn't he? Like a, a pastor. Stiff. A little stiff contact there. Uh, then what lies beneath in Castaway and Polar Express? I, I can't imagine how much money he's made, but it's got to be insane amounts of money. Like I, in, I, in I'm billions. also I'm pretty into flight. I'm pretty into oh, yeah. coming co later. Coked up Denzel flipping the plane over in the air. Yeah. Can I just say, do a Zemeckis thing, Sean. We'll give you 90 nerdy seconds. I'm obsessed with him. I think he is the weirdest, most interesting brain that came post movie brats out of anybody in America. If the 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 range and the obsessive quality of his movies is fascinating. Not all of his movies are good. Bill, you and I had a lot of fun at the expense of Forrest Gump on this show. Um, I just think basically Wait, we like Forrest Gump, though. I, I it, it's really really good. It's just it, there's a lot to kind of rag on about it because yes. Mecca's is is obsessed with the past and he's always going back into the past in his movies, even if not directly. Like what lies beneath is a Hitchcock movie, you know, Beowulf. Like he's always kind of looking at mythologies and and archaeology of American life and then bigger life beyond that, but. Specifically, after Brian De Palma, Martin Scorsese, George Lucas, Steven Spielberg, John Milius, 
right after the movie Bratz, the next generation of American filmmakers, he's like the first guy who clung onto those guys and was like, these guys know how to show the way to being a successful filmmaker in America. He's right on their heels. And he, as a kid at USC with Bob Gale, basically stalked Steven Spielberg to get his attention to show him his student film. And that really sets up his career. And he has so much diversity through the first 25 years of his career. He makes so many different kinds of movies. They all have this weird Zemeckisian quality about them. They're all basically like adventure movies. And we don't really get like adventure movies anymore. That's Back to the Future is a total adventure. It's just like Raiders of the Lost Ark. And I don't know. Romance I, I'm the so, Stone too. Romancing the Stone is the same thing. I'm so Im- like impressed and amazed. Like I love going back to his movies because they remind me of my childhood. But also, like I, I underestimated how ahead of the curve he was technologically in in every step of movie making. I mean, he's really one of the first guys to try stuff across the board. Sean, can I give you a take that you then take? Of course. You feel about Zemeckis the way people feel about Nolan. Like yes. That mixture of narrative and technological innovation. And that, you know, every movie is an event. Now, obviously, like Zemeckis has kind of like had fallow periods or whatever. But the way that people talk about Nolan, where it's like he's the only one defending original storytelling in Hollywood, making movies for movie theaters, making these big idea, big entertainment, big top films. And I know like, I'm a big Christopher Nolan fan, but I feel like that's how you feel about Zemeckis. Totally. And he let the technology kind of get the better of him in the last 20 years. Like you mentioned Polar Express, Bill, which really kicks off him getting so obsessed with this animation style that dominates his movies, Beowulf and A Christmas Carol. And he brings it into The Walk and he brings it into Welcome to Marwin, which is like kind of one of the most fascinating disasters in recent movie history. But that first 25 years, he is as prolific and original uh, an American mainstream movie maker as as we had. You know, so he follows the movie brats, but he's a generation before Tarantino and that and that whole crew. I think part of the reason he's not discussed like those guys is he's not part of a bigger group. You know, it's like he had no dream team. There were. The 80s, this is such a wasteland and, you know, there's a ton of cocaine going on back then. And I'm sure there's a couple of careers that fell by the wayside. But you don't hear about the Zebeckis generation because it didn't really exist. No, it's like the B-movie genre guys like Joe Joe Dante and Zemeckis and uh, Joe Johnston. Maybe Carpenter, although I think Carpenter might be a little older. I'm not sure. But that kind of like... Those guys who just kind of come out of that era that we, we revere of the late 70s. And, and then these dudes actually just make like pound for pound, really entertaining movies throughout the 80s and into the 90s. Well, I, I think mean, you could technically say Michael Mann and Zemeckis, they're coming into yeah. Hollywood at the same time, but nobody would ever group them together. That's exactly right. I was going to say most of the people who dominated as directors in the 80s were unlike the people who came before them and unlike the people who came after them were most closely identified with genres. So John McTiernan is an action director. He's one of the best directors of the 80s, but he's an action movie maker. You know, John Hughes makes coming of age movies and that's it. That's how we think of him. Zemeckis isn't like that. Like Zemeckis makes all different kinds of movies and he has much more in common, I think, with the Tarantinos and with the Scorseses who kind of bounce around to different settings, different kinds of stories. But all of their movies have this very specific feeling, this very specific style. I really I just think he's so interesting and it was so good for movies in the 1980s. Well, we'll talk about it when we uh, do most rewatchable scene. But the action scene 
just as a pure action scene of Marty going from 1955 to 1985 at the end is just an awesome, like eight minutes. It's so good. Every piece of it is perfect and it's so well executed. And I can't believe it was 35 years ago. I wouldn't change one piece of that scene. Like the reason we're doing this rewatchables now is it's on Netflix again. And my son watched it last week and he had never watched it. My son's 12 and a half. And he was, you know, it's it, it's a fair task to get him glued to a TV. The movie has to be good. Like, he's a pretty tough audience. Um, he was glued. He's really into it. And there's a huge payoff at the end. And then when Doc finally springs back to life, like, it's, oh, he's alive! You know, it's just, it's so good. It's so well done. Bill, did he know that there are two other ones? Yeah, he's he actually is uh, watching two today. He's doing the other two this weekend. Because that's also... I, I don't know how often this has happened or if this is one of the first times where it's very obvious that there is going to be a sequel at the end of this movie and you knew it in the theater or you know it the first time you watch it where you see at the end of the movie like, oh, the end of the movie is just a setup for the next movie. And of course they would do that with by shooting two and three together and having the plan for them. But you're like that. This was the first time that I felt like I was part of a franchise, I think. Yeah, and I don't think two and three were received in the moment as well as as the tale of those movies are, especially like Biff's uh, Sports Almanac, things like that. I think my recollection is people being fairly disappointed by two, and now I think it's it's come around. I think people actually appreciate and like it, and I and I think there's been a lot of stuff that's come out of those movies that have just entered the lexicon, and and even like producer Craig was telling us. He hadn't seen this movie, but he felt like he had seen it because there yeah. have been so many references over the years to it. And I think that's a good way to put it. Um, we got to talk about the Eric Stoltz part. It's too big for casting what ifs. It's, I don't know if it's like the number one recasting as they're filming something decision ever made, but it's certainly on the Mount Rushmore, whatever the the top four is. It's got to be top four. It's up there against Keitel and Apocalypse Now. That's pretty good too. We that that would be a good maybe on Apocalypse Now we'll we'll put some time into our Mount Rushmore. So they wanted Fox, couldn't do it because he's filming Family Ties and Meredith Baxter Bernie, who played his mom in that show, was having a baby in real life and wasn't in a lot of the episodes when they needed Fox and the Family Ties producers like we can't lose him. He's like he's carrying our show. We we basically like we can't like loan him out. So they get Eric Stoltz and he films, I, I didn't realize it was five weeks, films five weeks of scenes and it just doesn't feel right. There's something, it's, he's handling it too dramatically. He doesn't look authentic on the skateboard. He doesn't have the comic timing and it's just off. And he's yeah, on the set. He's telling everyone to call him Marty. Like he's gone full 80s method actor and the vibe is just off. And at some point they, they just are like, well, what the fuck? They go to the studio head, Sid Scheinberg. And they say, let's fire Stoltz. We'll replace him with Fox. He's now available. It'll cost us an extra 3 million bucks. We'll have to refilm everything. And Spielberg gets into, and is like, yeah, we got to do this. This can be such a big movie. This is going to hold it back. As they're doing this, they're still filming scenes with Stoltz. He gets fired, but they don't have Fox yet. So now they're filming more scenes 
but really only caring about the other parts of the scene, not the Stoltz part. And then they bring him in and they're like, you're fired. Sean, what are, in movie history, is there a worse story than this for an actor who misses out on being in a huge movie that might not have been as huge if he was in it, but still. And then this movie goes on to be this huge success. It's basically Ralph Cox and the 1980 Olympic hockey team when uh, he's the last cut and then that becomes the most iconic sports team in the 20, 20th century. I can't imagine what his life, he claims he doesn't care, whatever, it was only five weeks of my life, but he has to care. I think it's only mitigated by the fact that Eric Stoltz did go on to have a really good career and did get to be a part of really good movies and has a good reputation as an actor. And, you know, I mean, he goes on to be in, you know, aside from like kicking and screaming in a lot of movies, he's in Pulp Fiction. You know, he's in he's in some great stuff. It would have been much more tragic if he never went on to do anything ever again. You know, if he seemed like this white, hot young star gets cast in what was going to be the biggest movie of 1985 and then gets shunted aside. It do, I mean, the people, the way that people talk about him during this production, though, is not is a little unkind. People seem to think that he was little bit of a tough hang. You mentioned that the method acting and people calling him Marty. It just really seemed like he wasn't clicking with everybody. And this is totally a chemistry movie. You know, like Doc and Marty have to work together. Biff and Marty have to be adversarial in the right way. George and Marty have to click. And if he wasn't working with those people, then it was, I mean, it was obviously for the best. Yeah. And also, I think that even in the it, it, both in like some kind of wonderful and mask and the stuff that he did as a younger person. And then in the stuff that he does in the nineties, like water dance and, and he's in killing Zoe, right? Like, like yeah. he, he obviously probably wanted that kind of career. I think like the choices that he makes going forward are not the choices of somebody who's like, shit, I missed out on Marty McFly. I got to try and find another one. And you know, the footage of him in a couple of scenes is on YouTube. You can see it. And it, it is strange. It is like watching what if they sent a Smiths fan back to 1955. He's kind of moping around town. He seems a little scared, not not confused the way Marty is in the in the movie that we know, but a little bit more like depressed by all of it. So it it it's a great what if, but I think it wound up being what Stoltz actually wanted out of his career. So Christopher Lloyd said, "I felt for Eric. He was a really good actor." Although he was doing the part well, he was not bringing that element of comedy to the screen. Well, it's a comedy, so that's a problem. <laughs> Leah Thompson said, it was hard for me because I was really good friends with Eric. They'd been the wildlife together. He could be very difficult. He had such an intensity. He saw drama in things. He wasn't really a comedian. They needed a comedian. He's super funny in real life, but he didn't approach his work like that. And they really needed somebody who had those chops. To me, it's amazing they cast him. And now I'm really going to step on casting what ifs because I'm going to give you. So they Zemeckis was looking at Johnny Depp, Charlie Sheen and John Cusack initially. So he was told Michael J. Fox was off limits. They ended up offering the role to Ralph Macchio, according to my half-assed internet research. Macchio turned it down, saying later he thought the movie was about a kid, a car and plutonium pills. <laughs> Johnny Depp auditioned. And apparently it was so unmemorable, they don't even remember, they didn't even remember years later that he auditioned. And it came down to Stoltz and C. Thomas Howell. And Stoltz beat him out. And I actually think C. Thomas Howell, I'm a defender. I, th I think he's really good in Secret Admirer. Uh, big Soul Man guy? I am. I, I'm a soul big man. fan of you know, you Soul is, Man, not is as soul much. Man, soul Man is a flawed rewatchable? <laughs> <laughs> Flaw, flawed Man is a what the fuck happened rewatchable. 
I like C. Thomas Howell, though, and I actually think he would have done an okay job. But, you know, getting Michael J. Fox. He's cool in The Outsiders. Yeah. I think I think Cusack would have worked really well. You think so? I do. Because I think he's one of the few guys from that time who can do the comedy and the drama pretty well. And he's got like an awkwardness. He's got a charm. I think he would have been good. I think the thing with Fox that I always thought was underappreciated about him was the physical comedy with him. He He's like weirdly athletic, which you could see in Teen Wolf when he's just, you know, when he's not the wolf in the final scene. He's just wreaking havoc. He's like Steve Nash. But the stuff like when he's sliding over the DeLorean hood, when yeah. he's running full speed and like the stuff on the skateboard, he, I, there's a physicalness to him that I, I think that character really needed. And I, I don't, I can't imagine Eric Stoltz in a million years having that piece of it. It's such a weird miss by Zemeckis. There's also, if you, if you go on YouTube, you can see the bloopers from back to the future and you can see like how much fun Fox is having on set. Yeah. And if that was the gear change that they were looking for, it was like somebody who would really bring the kind of energy and comic nature of the part. You could just kind of see him like having an absolute blast, like just like being like this window won't open or I'm sliding across the hood and, yeah, you, you, they really made the right choice. He needs to have this like Charlie Chaplin or Jerry Lewis kind of physical comedy too. Where last night when we when I was rewatching it with my wife, the scene when he wakes up in Lorraine's bed and she sits down next to him on the bed and he starts sliding back and back and he falls out of the bed. My wife was like, asked me to pause it just so she could remark upon how funny. Michael J. Fox is, you know, like it's so uncommon <laughs> that someone can do like pratfalls like that while still being really slick and the hero is just yeah. like you were saying at the top, Bill. He's so unique. He's such a special dude. Yeah. And he was also a beloved actor, like on the set. One of those, even like when they did Spin City, like one of the reasons, um, you know, Bill Lawrence has a whole thing about just convincing him to come back to TV and once they got him, like everyone wanted to be on the show. He had just such a legendary reputation back in the 80s and 90s. So you go from that, this weird Stoltz dynamic where he's doing this Morrissey going back to 1955 type of dynamic to the role. And then you bring in Michael J. Fox, who's just, uh, you know, a happier, better actor, everything. He's a Huey Lewis fan. Stoltz said, uh, last thing on Stoltz, he said, I went back to acting school. I moved to Europe. I did some plays in New York. I actually invested in myself in a way that was much healthier. If I had become a massive star, I don't know if I wouldn't have gone into therapy. On the other hand, I would have been exceedingly rich, which would have been wonderful. So that was his take. I wanted to ask you guys about Michael J. Fox as a movie actor. Because I feel like he has a pretty underrated career. He's, he was in some really good movies in the 80s and he had good taste and he worked with a lot of good directors. Yeah. I like Teen Wolf. I like less than... Uh, no, was it not Less Than Zero? It was the other one. What was the other cocaine movie? Secret, Secret of, my, Secret of success? my Success, yeah. No, that wasn't a... They, oh, no, Bright Lights, did, Big City. Bright Lights, Big City. Secrets of my, Secret of My Success. What was the other one? He, oh, and then he was in uh, the, the Sean Penn movie. He's good Cash in that movie. Cash War. Is yeah, War. Yeah, he's really good in that. I don't know. He had, he had a great 80s. Where are you he guys did. at on 1991's James Woods cop movie, The Hard Way, <laughs> directed by John Badham? Because that, that, that's, a, that's a constant rewatch for me. <laughs> that's a bit it's of a tough, tough feat. Uh, th- things get dark in the nineties. He he does he, he picks some tough parts. I do really like um, Greedy from nineteen ninety four. I feel like that's like the slept on comedy of the nineties. I agree, Greedy's good. I think he had an issue because he was the boyish kid next door, and then all of a sudden he's thirty. And what do you do at that point? Where 
you know, it, it, people just, he was pigeonholed to some degree. I, you know, the Alex P. Keaton character was such an awesome character. It was really like one of my favorite TV characters of all time. You have just the whole premise of he's got these, uh, you know, hippie parents who are kind of now in the real world and they end up with this, this, uh, this son who like thinks Ronald Reagan's a hero. He's just this devout Republican. And it was really good. It, it, every, everything he saw the world through was framed through this lens of what his life was going to be when he was in his forties. Um, we're going to do the uh, categories in a second. Roger Ebert, three and a half stars. Loved it. Felt back to the future. Had similar themes to films of Frank Capra, especially it's a wonderful life. Also, praise Steven Spielberg for, quote, emulating the great authentic past of classical Hollywood cinema, who specialized in matching the right director with the right project. Hey, I don't know. Speaking of Raj, I got to give Raj a shout out. Um, There was this, did you see the Roger Ebert quotes that were on Twitter this week? No. About uh, stuff he wrote about about, uh, fandom? No. This is what Roger Ebert wrote once. A lot of fans are basically fans of fandom itself. It's all about them. They have mastered the Star Wars or Star Trek universes or whatever, but the objects of veneration are, but their objects of veneration are useful mainly as a backdrop to their own devotion. Anyone who would camp out in a tent on the sidewalk for weeks in order to be first in line for a movie is more into camping on the sidewalk than movies. Extreme fandom may serve as a security blanket for the socially inept who use its extreme structure as a substitute for social skills. If you were Luke Skywalker and she's Princess Leia, you already know what to say to each other, which is so much safer than having to ad-lib it. Your fanish obsession is your beard. If you know absolutely all the trivia about your cubbyhole of pop culture, it saves you from having to know anything about anything else. That's why it's excruciatingly boring to talk to such people. They're always asking you questions they know the answer to. In other words... Raj. Eat shit binge mode. <laughs> <laughs> Raj throwing darts. Wow. That's rough. I mean, you know, grain of salt there. Like the yeah. guy's devoted his entire life to knowing about the obsessive details about the making of, you know, Stanley Kubrick movies. You know, everybody is like fandom is stupid except for the fandom that I have. Exactly. You You could be like, oh, look at these nerds. And then you're like, I'm going to go line up for Sicario 2. (laughs) (laughs) Raj, when we when we do the rewatches awards, I can't wait for the the Raj section. It'll be great. All right. Most rewatchable scene. Unless you do. Do you guys consider opening credits a rewatchable scene? How well that opening credits is with uh, with Doc's whole lair and everything? Because it's, oh, it's, it's really it's well done. It's incredible. And I, yeah, and I just want to say that is the most accurate depiction of 80s maximalist tech where all of your friends were like, dude, my, I have so many components to my stereo. Like, check out these dials. And it was like, now everything is just like, I have the phone. That's everything I need. I can watch TV. I can listen to music. And do. Back then, it was like, no, man, I have 17 graphic equalizers for my stereo. This one, I don't even know what it does. I just have it here. And all the computers <laughs> were giant. So I love how going through that. And it's there was a real like feeling of like a kind of like demented... Sci- like PBS science show where it's like everything is an experiment or like a chain reaction. I remember being really into that when I was a kid. It's so close 
to a movie, a scene in a movie that comes out one month later. It's so close to the making breakfast scene in Pee-wee's Big Adventure, where we're in Pee-wee's house and all these contraptions are all fitting together and moving together to make breakfast. And the, the scene is basically doing the same thing. Imagine being Tim Burton going to the movie theater, seeing Back to the Future's opening credits and being like, fuck, this is the same. It's the same move. It's, it's like, again, it's a Charlie Chaplin thing. It's like a City Lights thing. It's a it's a modern times thing. It's like using technology to tell your story. And that's that, that's like an obsession of Zemeckis. So it's a perfect way to open this movie. Second rewatchable scene, Doc Brown sends Einstein the dog into the future. He's all right. He's fine. And he's completely unaware that anything happened. As far as he's concerned, the trip was instantaneous. That's why his watch is exactly one minute behind mine. He skipped over that minute to instantly arrive at this moment in time. Come here. I'll show you how it works. All right. <laughs> Riveting stuff. I can only imagine PETA during this scene. PETA on the sidelines. <laughs> Really, really concerned about Einstein's welfare as he's going 88 <laughs> miles an hour. Uh, I really I, I like that, have, that. I would have loved the takes about that, like in, in uh, online, where it's just like, why the depiction of Einstein is not okay. Yeah. Did, did they go too far with Einstein? <laughs> I had a dog named Einstein. Here's my first person <laughs> personal essay about the time he fell out of my car and why this should never happen to you. Um, this is when the movie, the ceiling gets removed from the movie. Because you're like, oh, this would be cool. And then Doc Brown's like, watch this. I'm gonna, my dog's going to disappear and then come back a minute later. It's like, what? And the dog just gets out. Look, the clock's same. It's like, what the fuck is going on? Um, next scene is Marty in 1955 meeting his, uh, his dad and then his mom in the coffee shop. What? You're George McFly. Yeah, who are you? Say, what do you let those boys push you around like that for? Well, they're bigger than me. Stand tall, boy. Have some respect for yourself. Don't you know? Pretty big coincidence. He just ends up right next to his dad. It's definitely, definitely, yeah. They move that part of the movie along fast. But then meeting the mom, she thinks his name's Calvin Klein after he gets knocked out, all that stuff. Really good. Calvin, why why do you keep calling me Calvin? Well, that is your name, isn't it? Calvin Klein? It's written all over your underwear. Ah. Oh, I guess they call you Cal. Uh, no, actually, people call me Marty. Oh. Chris, you want you want to do twenty seconds on Leah Thompson here, or you want to save it for later? We could save it, but I I I think we need to save it for a larger unpacking of the psycho psychosexual overtones of this film. Great. Uh, next one is Marty goes to see nineteen fifty five Doc and tries to convince him he's from the future and that they've known each other forever. And they have the Who's the President 1985, Ronald Reagan, and Doc's reaction to that. Really great. Tell me, future boy, who's President of the United States in 1985? Ronald Reagan. Ronald Reagan? The actor? Then who's Vice President? Jerry Lewis. I suppose Jane Wyman is a first lady. Well, wait, Doc. And Jack Benny is Secretary of the Treasury. Doc, you got to listen to me. That's also got like my favorite bit of Fox in this movie is maybe when he's just like, all right, Saturday night, you can show me around for a couple of days. Like, we can do that. <laughs> uh, uh, next one, Marty punches Biff. All right, punk. Now, I'm whoa, gonna- whoa, Biff. What's that? <laughs> <laughs> Ends up with the chase scene and, and just like 
a million pounds of manure being dumped on uh, on Biff's car. And he invents oh, that's skateboarding. really good. And he yeah, and there's some, some great skateboarding. Some great skateboarding just in general in this movie. The uh, next rewatchable scene, Marty um, playing Johnny B. Good, <laughs> creating rock and roll music. All right, this is, uh, this is an oldie, but, uh, well, it's an oldie where I come from. All right, guys, uh, listen to the blues riff and B. Watch me for the changes and try and keep up, okay? Some people say it's Chuck Berry. Other people say it's Marty McFly. Uh, Chuck Berry's cousin's calling Chuck during the scene. Marvin! Um, your, your cousin, cousin Marvin! Marvin. <laughs> Chuck! Chuck! It's Marvin! Your cousin Marvin Berry! You know that new sound you're looking for? Well, listen to this! Uh, Marty says, guess you guys aren't ready for that yet, but your kids are going to love it. Um, that scene's great. In fact, I asked my son what his favorite scene in the entire movie was, and he said that scene hands down, which was interesting because Zemeckis almost cut it out. He felt like it actually slowed the story down. He wanted to get Marty back to the clock tower, but they had a preview audience screening where they had this, and they all listed this scene as their favorite scene. Um, so there you go, that. And then the last one is just my I'm my pick for most rewatchable. Marty actually going back to 1985. An amazing plan by Doc Brown. One of the great action scenes, not only the eighties, but I would argue ever. Um, it just keeps, it keeps going to where you think it's going to get fucked up and Doc's on the clock tower and he's, and all of a sudden it, he can't connect to it. And now he's got to slide down and it's just so many beats and it's so well done. It's really great. Uh, what do you have for most rewatchable? I agree with you that the most rewatchable scene is the final 12 minutes of the movie um i think also chris you hit on this a little bit the end of the movie which sets up the sequel you know the sequel was not greenlit before they while they were making this so they were just kind of teasing the idea that they could or they would do a sequel and the movie had to be a success for that to happen but i know i didn't see the movie in theaters i was too young when it came out but i know that the first time i saw it i have never been more i've never had the hairs on my neck stand up straighter then when the car the wheels flip and yeah. they start flying i was yeah. like what is this you can do this in a movie this is unbelievable and even though you know that's i think that's ultimately a part of the scene that you're talking about bill that final scene but that whole stretch run the final 12 minutes or so is so perfect so perfectly paced so fun so exciting that's sort of what i'm saying what i'm talking about when i say an adventure movie like it doesn't matter that it's 1955 doesn't matter that it's 1985 it just you're it feels like you're literally on a on a, a ride at an amusement park. Yeah, and an underrated part of that end run is also the the best vert like the you know the best case scenario version of the McFly family and them coming back from playing tennis or whatever and the yes. guys in the suit and she's like, I have so many boyfriends and Biff's washing the car and Marty's kind of like, you know, interaction with that whole new scenario is great. You guys I think agree. This- do you think that this movie has the best example of a character in the movie saying the title of the movie in a scene? Next Saturday night, we're sending you back to the future. Okay, all right. Saturday. Uh, that's such a long list. We should do that at some point. My favorite is actually when Michael uh, Michael Douglas is like, "Welcome to Wall Street in Wall Street." <laughs> <laughs> 
Or when Michael Douglas is like, she's got a basic instinct in Basic Instinct. <laughs> My favorite is always going to be Face Off because they clearly deliberately wrote a whole scene where he's a face off, face yeah. off. Uh-huh. I- I'll say that my, I think my my most rewatchable scene is actually uh, tripping Biff and inventing skateboarding. That to me was like, I remember when I saw that and and just immediately went out and got a Veriflex after that. I was just like, <laughs> I had this for uh, unanswerable questions, but do you think can you tie the skateboard boom to this movie? Uh, the mainstreaming of it, yeah. I mean, it was already yeah. a thriving thing out of like Southern yeah. California punk and stuff like that, but the idea of like a kid in in Ohio seeing this movie in a theater and just being like, I guess I have to, I have to get a skateboard now. Also, very little skating done in this movie because most of it is guys grabbing onto the back of trucks. I'd love to know whether or not that led to a lot of horrendous accidents. <laughs> yeah, that's not a good idea. I, I told my son, like, don't do that, <laughs> please, ever. I remember that point. being a thing that I asked my dad about in the 80s, like I'd be like, is it, is it cool if I like I'm riding my skateboard and I just grab onto somebody's bumper? And he was like, you wouldn't want to do that in Philadelphia. Yeah. <laughs> easy, they're just going to throw it in reverse. <laughs> like, You're back to the future of your death. Um, I Last thing on this, though, this is a movie that just gets better as it goes along. And I, I think even the last 25 minutes is just, it's one of those movies. It was on cable a lot in the mid eighties, like a lot, like a lot, lot, lot. And it was one of those movies. If you hit it at a certain point, you're like, all right, I'm, I'm in for the rest of the way. What is this? 35 minutes left. I'm in twist my arm. Let's go. I have a new category just for this movie. Most mid eighties moment. Here are your nominees. Huey Lewis, the twin pines mall, a DeLorean, Pepsi free. Or an X-rated movie theater just casually being in downtown of a, of a normal American city. What was the most mid-80s moment for you, Chris? Uh, it's either Pepsi Free and Tab or um, the, 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 you know, the absolute majesty and omnipresence of Huey Lewis's sports LP, which is, you know, he's got the, I think he's got the poster up in his room and uh, Power of Love. It's so weird that Huey Lewis was like, for a while, was like the biggest musician in the world. It's just so wild to me. He really was. Are are you guys pro Huey? Yeah. Oh, yeah. For sure. Huey yeah. rules. Huey's just like an American Elvis Costello, man. He was. Wow. Huey had one of the best two-year runs, I think, of any male musician ever. Yeah. Crossing over into this movie at the height of his fame when he's already had his whole run and then he parlays it to Back to the Future. It's Sean, just unbelievable. Which one do you give the edge to? Huey Lewis and the News' sports or Bob Dylan bringing it all back home? <laughs> <laughs> you sure you don't want to put like Sinatra's and the Wee Small Hours on that list too? Uh, and Beethoven's, no, I like Beethoven's Ninth. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's, it was him, Michael Jackson, um, Prince, Bruce Springsteen. Madonna. Madonna, it's it's an unbelievable run of just really famous, famous, famous musicians. And he was as famous as any of them. With that said, the the winner of most mid-80s moment is Pepsi Free. That is like a specific mid-80s was the only time you could even get it. And it's just so funny that it's in this movie. Are we absolutely sure it's not the DeLorean itself? Well, you had the DeLorean in the early 80s, too, is the only thing. Oh, okay. So but just it's definitely, it's it's... It's definitely uh, it's definitely a nominee. Pepsi Free was like a, a burp. 
It was, it <laughs> happened for a split second. What's age the best? Uh, reelect Mayor Goldie Wilson, how they tip that off and then it pays off when he's in the uh, ice cream shop. I love that. The Power of Love is just a good song. 35 years old. I, I, a lot of 80s pop songs have not aged well. That song is just fucking good. Don't need a credit card to ride this train. It's it's just really <laughs> solid. And I like that back in time's not bad either. I like that he just specifically wrote that for the movie. He saw a screening. And they were like, Huey, one more. And he's like, all right, let me see a screening. And he sees the screening and he's like, uh, breaks his notepad out. What about uh, back in time? I love how Marty plays Power of Love at the Battle of the Bands tryout. It's great. Yeah. With with Huey Lewis. As a judge, yeah. As a judge. I mean, uh, you could only do this stuff in the 80s. Isn't it crazy that there was a 35-year-old white dude playing blues music and he was the biggest music star in the world? That's another thing that will never happen again. And he called Huey his album 35. Sports. And yeah. he just called right. his rap. They were like, what's the album called? Sports. Fuck yes. <laughs> and I also think Huey stepped in in the mid-80s. With the ladies. Oh, sure. That was another thing that was going handsome, on with him back Handsome then. cat. Great job. Great job by Huey. Thumbs up all the way around. Uh, another what's age the best. Marty being hot, horrified by his flirty mom. I actually <laughs> think it's an underrated part of this movie, how horrifying it would be to have your mom hit on you, not realizing it was her son. I can't even imagine. That's my worst nightmare. This is a great follow-up to the Godfather Part 3 incest conversation that we can yeah. have here again. Yeah. You know, it keeps coming back on this show. Incest rewatchable, still still possible. Um, 1950s ice cream shops has aged the best. George punching Biff at the end has aged the best. I like what he says, what happens to us in the future? Do we become assholes or something? The odds are probably yes. And then my last one's aged the best, Claudia Wells. And, and there's a whole, I might as well do it now. She's I mean, did it age be the in, best though? Because, you know, she. this is her, her first and last shot at the Back to the Future, future franchise. I just think it's a great job by her. She's, and I'm just going to throw those guys out to you. Claudia Wells or Sloan Peterson? Who do you got? Claudia Wells. I'm Sloan. I'm Sloan. Also, such, she's so supportive. Like Mar- <laughs> <Right>. Marty, <laughs> Marty is not a good musician. You know what I mean? Like straight up. And he's just like, oh, I'm going to send my tape to the record labels and they're going to reject me. And she's like, no, you're, you're talented, Marty. Yeah. The pinheads are going somewhere. Then he checks out a bunch of other chicks and she's just like, well, you know, like puts it and brings his like face back towards her. She's just like so ride or die. Yeah. We all need a Jennifer Parker. That's why I married my high school sweetheart. <laughs> <laughs> she's great. Her and Sloan Peterson, the best girlfriends, best movie girlfriends of the 80s. Any other, uh, what's age the best for you guys? Yeah, um, I want to say that studio backlots have aged the best. Yes, I was going to say this, Chris. Yeah, so like if you guys, I, I don't know if you guys ever went to Universal in Orlando, but uh, there's a lot of Back to the Future vibes there. And I remember like this small town when he goes back to the 1950s and all the crane shots of this, it's pretty obviously a backlot shot. And I, I think that was maybe the first time where I, when I went to a theme park a couple of years later and I, I kind of was like, oh, so this is where they do it. Like, this is how they make movies is they build a suburban town square and they can do anything they want at it. So I, I, I feel like it has like a very cool vibe because of that. I so miss that in movies too. I mean, it, it doesn't hold it back. It doesn't make it seem any less realistic. It doesn't, it doesn't uh, distract you from the movie, but it is so obviously 
a, a universal lot if you've ever stepped foot on any of them. And that and that one is still there at Universal, I believe, in L.A. That's that's like a legendary lot where so yeah. many great movies have been made. Well, now we're not making any movies, so I'm I'm nostalgic for all movie sets in all places. But yeah, I I remember the first time. What's the one? Warner Brothers in Burbank. Yes, getting a tour and driving around and just seeing like these man-made little downtowns where they just they film whatever in there yeah. and then when it's the next movie they just change some of the signs and they're off again and, and once you know how to look for that in movies it's pretty funny it's especially like you can see it a lot in in sitcoms even today but like you know if you're just like watching how I, how I met your mother and you're like that's not new york you know? yeah. yeah you can go see central perk right now yeah. and visit the friend set if you want to it's that stuff still is still happening i also think uh, obviously christopher lloyd has aged the best because he hasn't aged at all i mean he, it's, that's he's remarkable. literally aged the best yeah. i would also throw out alan silvestri's score yes iconic up there with any john williams score at the of the time and really really like i i forgot when it first dropped last night i was like oh my god this is a fucking famous he's still doing it man he he does all the music for the avengers movies i mean he is alan silvestri is still at the peak of his powers and he's got like a winery also up in the uh in carmel fyi great life <laughs> i have huey lewis as my winner for what's age the best what's age the worst <laughs> okay um my Claudia Wellstock that I bought in like 1985. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I was all in. I was like, what's next for her? What was next? I don't know. But why couldn't she have played Michael Corleone's daughter in The Godfather? Where the fuck mm. was she? Add her to the list. She went on to a long and storied career of small roles on TV shows. Well, it's a sad story. She had to drop out of the second one because her mom had cancer and yep. they replaced her with Elizabeth Shue. And just kind of kept that character going but it, it's it's a bummer because obviously that would have been awesome for her um i think a lot of people think elizabeth shoe is in the original because she right. was more famous and two and three came a few years later and by that point she was more of a known quantity and i i always forget when i rewatch that claudia wells is in the original elizabeth shoe would have been i would have been fine with that as much as I love Claudia Wells, I'm uh, I'm full support of all Elizabeth Shue appearances. I'm more what's age the worst. Leah Thompson's fat mom makeup just looks really fake 35 <laughs> years later. It just it's like, oh, it's three and a half hours to put it on. It's like, ah, eh, it doesn't look great. It's a it's a real like precursor to fat bastard. Yeah, it's tough. <laughs> uh, the terrorist coming to kill Doc Brown has never has always been like uh a loophole in this movie that he borrowed plutonium from Libyan terrorists and oh, they're coming to get him. Yeah, they don't really explain the geopolitical nah. whatever's of, of the Libyans being in suburban California so that Doc Brown can make them a weapon, I guess. <laughs> there is a really funny joke about Soviet guns in, in the movie, though. Although Zemeckis has basically like apologized for this whole part of the plot. He's basically <laughs> like, my bad. This was insensitive. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. Sorry, everybody. Uh, also insensitive, George McFly peeping Tom, <laughs> yes, climbing yeah. in a tree to watch Leah Thompson undress. Like, uh, you're getting arrested for that now. My son flagged this immediately as, boy, that's weird. Biff assaulting Leah Thompson in the car, leading to George coming to save the day is like kind of insane. I, I, I can't believe they did it 35 years ago. That's Marty's plan, though, is Marty's like, I'm going to get handsy and then you're going to punch me, right? What do you mean? Isn't that like Marty's plan, but Biff takes him out of the car? 
Right. But then Biff is like basically going to commit an assault. Exactly. It's not, it's they, it goes awry there for a second. I don't know why they had to. Although, I mean, it's 1955. It's not like there weren't monsters date raping girls. Like that was definitely something that was happening. So, you know, given the time period, I don't know if it's, maybe it aged the best in a fucked up way. Yeah, I just I I'm not positive I want to date rape and back to the future, I guess. True. Is my, Good point. Yeah. This movie's PG, right? <laughs> yeah. That's there's a lot of stuff in this that is surprising. It's like it's pretty violent. They say shit a lot in this movie. Yeah. I was surprised but that, that it was PG. That was Spielberg's thing is to slip in a couple of curse words into those. Because I remember whenever you would see like Goonies, you'd get really fired up during the curse word parts. Yeah. And then uh Michael J. Fox's guitar playing is atrocious. I know they oh. had to I mean, it, it's just not even close to looking realistic. It's really bad. I think I think the invent M- Marty McFly inventing rock and roll has probably aged the worst as a concept. Yeah, I guess <laughs> he took this from he took this into Forrest Gump as what if I have Forrest just interact with every single significant person? I can't believe you guys didn't get into this on Music Exists, Chris. I feel like this was a this was a rich topic for you. The lost Season episode. Two. Season two. <laughs> yeah. I forgot in what's age the best. I love the uh I love the high school prom band. I love those guys. It's a great job by them, by Chuck Berry's cousin and and his whole crew. Um casting what ifs, we hit a lot of them. Did you know that Christopher Lloyd was not the first choice for Doc Brown? Yes. Who was? It was John Lithgow. Oh. He would have been good. Similarly yeah. like a- a- ageless kind of guy, you know, like Yeah. Could make a case he might have been better. I've never not liked John Lithgow in a movie. He's always good. Yeah. I, I still feel like his cliffhanger villain was toe-to-toe with Hans Gruber in the action movie villain finals. I, I loved his cliffhanger villain. Don't think we won't be doing cliffhanger in the rewatchables. Great movie. Thomas F. Wilson cast as Biff Tannen because they had originally cast somebody named J.J. Cohen who they didn't feel like was physically imposing enough to bully Stoltz. So they made him one of Biff's cohorts and then Stoltz got bounced and Michael J. Fox came in who could have been, uh, anyone could have looked physically imposed the next time. So tough break for him. And then Melora Hardin originally cast as Jennifer and let go after Stoltz dismissed because she was too tall to be next to Fox. Always liked Melora Hardin. Loved her. Yeah. I have a lot of stock. Um, and then finally, um, a lot of people don't know this, but Al Pacino was supposed to be Doc Brown. <laughs> Chris, <laughs> Chris, you have you have that right? You have the screen test. Of no, that? yeah. So uh, let me let me just uh, let me just bring it up. It's it's a it's a, a weird file I got. From, he said uh, he was going to play it a lot, like the guy from Heat, and that's I think why they decided bad idea. If we could uh, somehow harness this lightning, channel it into the flux capacitor, it just might work. Next Saturday night, we're sending you back to the future. <laughs> so he doubted it up too much and it just didn't work. Yeah, Zemeckis was like, you know what? I'm good. I'm yeah, good. Al, I know you've won some Oscars. You're a major guy, but I, I just I'm think the sorry off. if the chicken got overcooked. We're sending you back to 1985, <laughs> motherfucker. <laughs> Could you make the case that Al, Al Pacino basically just stole Doc Brown's <laughs> acting style in the 90s? He's kind of just doing Doc Brown. 
That's why I sent the quote to Chris to ask him to read there the rewatchables because I felt like the Vincent Hanna, Doc Brown were like way closer yeah. than I was prepared for. Marty, your mom, she's got a great ass. <laughs> oh man. Oh, uh best that guy, aka the Joey Pants Award. Well, it's a murderer's row because we have the bald guy from Top Gun. Yeah. Playing James the bald Tolkien. guy from Top Gun, like the same fucking just carrying part. it over. I don't, maybe just took that <laughs> took that scene and sent it to the guys from Top Gun. We have George Desenzo, who's one of the all time that guys from that era. He plays uh, Leah Thompson's dad, and then my personal choice, Malachi from Children of the Corn, who was also the redheaded guy in Can't Buy Me Love. Oh yeah, that guy. He cuts in in the dance. How are we not going Billy Zane here? Well, we could. He doesn't have a speaking line, though. I think Mark McClure is on the board, too, who was oh. Jimmy Olsen from the Superman movies. He plays Dave McFly. I oh, vote yeah. for Malachi. He wants you to, Malachi. I'm um, on board with that. The Vincent Hanna, give me all you got award for most overacting. It's a two-man race here between Crispin Glover and Christopher Lloyd. I, I don't know what Christopher what Crispin Glover is going for in some of these scenes. I never got it. I never was a fan. I happened to be watching Letterman the night that he sent the kick near Letterman's head and Letterman just ended the interview and got him the fuck out of there. Uh, never a fan. I, I actually don't like him that much in this movie. And, uh, and he's my winner. All-time weird guy. I thought about making him what's age the worst, too. I just... Uh, if you read about the movie, they say that he was really nervous during the making of it, and that accounts for a lot of the weirdness in his performance. It's very memorable. I mean, you, you kind of have to give him points for being original. There's not a lot of people who have that acting style. And honestly, if you look at Joaquin Phoenix's acting style, you can see a little bit of Crispin Glover in there. It's not like he wasn't an influential person. And, you know, he's in like River's Edge. He was in some in some important and interesting movies, but. There are scenes where he just feels like he's in a different movie. Wait a minute. Don't I know you from somewhere? Yes. Yes. I'm George. George McFly. I'm your density. I mean, your destiny. Yeah, I don't enjoy him in this movie. And, Me neither. And, and it definitely, he has a, a real, like, creep vibe to, to him. But his performance is perfectly calibrated to the movie. I mean, this movie is essentially a cartoon come to life. And all of his gestures are so big and so, like, greasy hair and the hand slowly turning into a fist. Like, he was really right for this style of acting. I just don't love spending a ton of time with him. I think the the Joaquin Phoenix analogy is a good one because if you take Joaquin Phoenix 10 years later and put him... Yeah, I'd be like 12 years later and put him in this movie. It's just more interesting. I, I think he's almost playing like an SNL sketch version of Marty's dad. And and I don't know. I, I just didn't think it worked. The, uh, the Brandy Booth Award for best performance by a pet. We have Einstein the dog here with some, uh, some really strong. I'm going eight out of 10 chewies for Einstein. I liked completely non-flummoxed by the time travel. Just gets, didn't shit in the car. Seem cool with it. Just uh, totally jumped out. holds his nerve in front of the Libyans. Yeah. I would say he did a poor job of alerting his master to the arrival of the Libyans. <laughs> so I'm going six. 
<laughs> okay. Uh, Dan Waiters Award, best heat check. Who do you have? Are, or, I mean, is this a time to talk about Thomas F. Wilson and Biff? We can. I think he's in too many scenes. I it's weird. I don't I actually don't think there's a Dion winner for this one. There's nobody coming in hot for like two scenes. Unless you wanted to go with Leah Thompson's dad, because he's I guess fairly funny. Or the principal. Yeah, James or the Tolkien. Principal. Yeah. Yeah. You could go James Tolkien as as Strickland. I but I mean, where does Biff fit into this conversation then? I wish that had been a better actor too. Oh, I love him. I think he's, oh, he's so incredible. great. Oh, I'm he's so a perfect fan of for his. the 80s. Yeah, I agree. You wouldn't want so somebody perfect. more famous though, somebody whose like career was headed somewhere. I kind of like that he like just. I mean, it's it's probably sad for him that he is just Biff for his career. Yeah, but he is. I mean, he is such an like an icon of that kind of character, of that kind of bully character. I, I think he's great in all three movies. Hello, hello, anybody home? Hey, think but fly. Think. I gotta have time to recopy it. You realize what would happen if I hand in my homework and your handwriting? I'll get kicked out of school. You wouldn't want that to happen, would you? Bill, what about we replace Biff with uh, Albert Gans from 48 Hours? James Remar? <laughs> um, I don't know. I, I, he's fine. I don't, okay. I don't feel as strongly as I did about Crispin Glover. But we'll all agree to disagree. Recasting couch. I it's Crispin Glover's part, but I don't know who the actor is. I don't know who you would have gone with. I don't really know. I'd have to really look at the landscape of the mid eighties trying to figure out who the perfect person was. But it's definitely, in my opinion, not Crispin Glover. Could Anthony Michael Hall have done the that part? Oh, that's good. Yeah, yeah. Why not? Or would that be weird? Would that not work? I, there's something about Crispin Glover that like it just almost does look like he and Michael Fox are weirdly related in some ways. They have yeah. like, you know. Could I throw throw Tom Hanks at you for here? Mm. I think he's a, is he a little old by this time? Man, he's like mid-20s. He's bosom buddies, right? I guess it's yeah. Michael J. Fox. Around. It's he's funny like that you say Tom, Tom Hanks. Hanks. I was going to say, what if Meg Ryan is Leah Thompson's character? Mm. Wow, I feel like That's that would huge. work. Yeah, I I love Leah Thompson, and she's untouchable for me in this movie. Bill, what wow. about uh, for and George? then she respawned herself with Zoe Deitch. <laughs> Zoe Deutsch, she's keeping it going. That's an interesting word for giving birth to a, a, a lovely <laughs> well, no, daughter. She just spawned Re-spawned. a second bond, <laughs> a second IMDb out of out of. Uh, it's like if Michael Jordan had, like Jeffrey Jordan had just become like a five-time All-NBA person. Like, wow, more more impressive for the resume. What about uh, Robin Williams as George? I think he's too old, but too I like old. it. I think like 1978 Robin Williams would have been perfect. I really think that part could have been amazing in the right hands. I, I don't think he totally got there. What about Zabka as Biff? Well, see, now you're talking my language. There fantasy. we go. Okay. That's what I mean. Okay. I need a Zabka. I don't feel like Biff on the Zabka scale is not not there. How fast internet research? We hit a lot of this stuff already. the The original climax was um, Marty went back to 1985 by driving through a nuclear expo- explosion during a weapons test in Nevada, and they decided it was too expensive, and they audibled <laughs> and did the clock tower sequence. That was crazy. I did some Leah Thompson research. Um. What do you mean by for, that? For the podcast, but also just because I like Leah Thompson. 
Mr. She was Skin? Dating, she was dating Dennis Quaid at the time they filmed this movie. Oh. Dennis what's, Quaid. What's Quaid's pod called again? I it should just be called the woman I've dated because I den- think it's a long <laughs> The Denissance, yeah. Maybe you should talk about this on the Denissance. Eric Stoltz is actually in a scene in this movie when Biff gets punched by Marty. They use the the footage of when they shot that with Eric Stoltz. So that's his hand. Uh, there's some weird Biff versus uh, Eric Stoltz stuff where there's some shoving and Thomas Wilson thought uh, Stoltz was going too far and had bruises after and was like, when we have our fight scene, I'm going to get it back. But then he got fired. And then... Uh, and then Fox filmed Family Ties during the day and Back to the Future from 6.30 to 2.30 and was just working 18 hours a day for a while there. The To Be Continued at the end of Back to the Future was on the VHS release, which is why people remember it. It was not in the theater. And then it was not on the DVD release. So when they released it in VHS, when VHS was really taken off in the mid-80s, that was uh, in there. And then, do you think... Huey Lewis won the Oscar for Power of Love in nineteen in the nineteen eighty six Oscars for the nineteen eighty five movie campaign. I do not. No, no. He was nominated though. Do you know what won over Huey Lewis's Power of Love in nineteen eighty five? Was it Cindy Lauper for Goonies? No, it's way it's way worse. Um, it was Say You Say Me in White Nights by Lionel Richie. Oh yeah, I'm I'm a fan. I'm pro. Overpower a love? Well, I just like Lionel Richie. I'm glad that he has an Oscar. I do too, but that's... I think if it was Hello by Lionel Richie, I'd be like, all right, that's fair. But say you, say me. Do you think Huey would have given up all the all the ladies he betted in the 80s to have one no. Oscar? <laughs> the answer is no. <laughs> Stopping you now. I have a huge Apex Mountain. Yeah. Michael J. Fox has to be yes. It's really hard, I think, as an actor to top being on... a iconic sitcom and being in a, an all-time iconic movie in the same summer. That's bonkers. Huey Lewis, I'm going to say yes to. Christopher Lloyd coming right out of Taxi into this. It's got to be yes. Yeah. Claudia Wells, yes. Crispin Glover, yes. Thomas F. Wilson, yes. Libyan Terrorist? Apex Mountain? <laughs> yeah. Was this it for no. them? Was this as good I as it I would say got? Gaddafi has ownership of that one. Just okay. the entire Qaddafi run. Right. Throwing it out there. Pepsi free, yes. What about Pepsi? So I think Pepsi so, in general. Because then Pepsi goes on to be associated with the when did Michael Jackson the fire? Right happen? after that. Yeah. So that's like that's a dip, you know? So this is definitely like maximum. Right. They took a hit. Yeah. Robert Zemeckis. I say yes because the movies that he makes after this that he gets people to give him money for. You mentioned Who Framed Roger Rabbit, which I really still really like, is in- insane. I mean, the p- the pitch on that movie is so high concept and it was so risky and so expensive. It's one of the all-time Katzenberg heat checks where he's like, doubt me if you dare, this is going to be a fucking home run. And th- he was right. And kind of an anti-quibby. And I, I think... It- so it probably has to be for Zemeckis. Even though he wins Best Director for Forrest Gump and even though he you know, goes on to this amazing career. I think this is what sets him up for anything he wants to do. I think the combo of Romancing the Stone going into Back to the Future is pretty insurmountable. It's hard to imagine a better one too than that. Chris, what about time travel for Apex Mountain? Was this it? Did we peak here? It's this or lost. 
And I think it's Ooh. I think it's this because I think this essentially popularizes a ton of ideas about time travel that really only scientists or physicists had ever contemplated before. Like the idea that you could go back and affect your present by going into the past. I don't think that people were really like H.G. Wells was on that, dude. Yeah, but it, I would argue that the most popular movie or one of the most popular movies ever made is like got a bigger cultural footprint than H.G. Wells. Shots fired at H.G. Wells. <laughs> That's right. It pop culture <laughs> time travel. Picking nets. Did we ever figure out why the pinheads got just so su- dismissed so quickly at the 1985 high school tryouts? Maybe Scott it's them because off the stage in five seconds. Marty acts like they are just like his backing band and he walks on five seconds before and doesn't do any practicing or rehearsing and is more busy hanging out at this old man's house checking out a bunch of clocks. Okay. I think if he had performed the heart of rock and roll instead of some bullshit Eddie Van Halen ripoff, he would have been in good shape. Fair. What about, uh, is it the older brother who works at Burger King? Dave. And then when Marty goes back to 1985, but everything's much better and happier now, he's there in a suit headed to work, but he's still living at home. What the fuck is that guy doing? Move out of the house, buddy. You have a job. You're like 28. Get an apartment. Completely. Yes. It it sticks out. You're in middle America. Get an apartment or rent a house. What are you doing? You share a bathroom with like your sister and your brother still, you moron? <laughs> I think the idea is that they have a bigger house and maybe he has more room to himself, but yeah. Um, the the Jeep that Marty gets at the end. I swear to go on the record, that's a really nice Jeep. Yeah. That for for the day. And it, they almost a little too nice. I think his reaction, he's flabbergasted, but it could have been a little more flabbergasted because he's like in the old 1985 version, he's like borrowing his dad's shitty car. And now he's got this fucking kick-ass, amazing Jeep. I would have passed out. So George McFly gets a copy of his first novel at the end of the movie. But what is his job? Unclear. He's a self-help book. He's a self-help writer, right? At the end or in the beginning? Like, what's he no, doing? No, at the in- end, he gets his, his first book is published and it's a science fiction novel, which is like oh, right. him like following his dream which Marty encourages him to do when they're at the, in the cafeteria earlier in the movie. But it's unclear like what job he does that allows him to buy his son that sweet Jeep. I have another pick and nits. You guys are going to make fun of me. I think you really own, at the end of the movie, how much better everything is, including Leah Thompson. I would have had her in like the Jane Fonda aerobics outfit, ready to go to like an aerobics class, just looking smoking fucking hot. I would have added that. Add, added that wrinkle. Good note. Just note, more, yeah. just more for her, Mister Skin Page. You know, that's all you're. That's all you're looking to add. <laughs> Not fair. Uh, best quote we've we've mentioned a bunch of them. Is they, that the signature quote of this movie is probably just "Great Scott." Great Scott, what gigawatts? Great Scott. Yeah, well, I might have sort of bumped into my parents. Great Scott. I don't ever remember hearing that before this movie, and it actually became a thing of people saying that. Great Scott. Where we're going, we don't need roads. Hey, Doc, we better back up. We don't have enough road to get up to 88. Roads? Where we're going, we don't need roads. Yeah, that's another good one. Probably unanswerable questions. Um, Would Marty end up with tinnitus from the beginning of the movie with the speaker being so loud it blows him backwards by 20 feet? I feel like his hearing's never the same after that. I, I feel like hearing was just better back then. Like people could take more, you know, 
guys used to turn their stereos up real loud. But that whole generation of guys is deaf now. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's true. Um, how many concussions did he get in the trilogy? It's at least like three or four. He gets knocked out over and over again over the course That's of like true. five days. It's tough. I think, honestly, that like there's Tom Rinaldi's at his house right now. I'm with Marty <laughs> McFly. He's had a lot of issues over the years. Will Smith's like, tell the truth. Yeah. <laughs> tell the truth. Um, here's a question. Doc Brown, good dog owner? I think more of an 80s dog owner where dogs were just like kind of there. You know, you didn't have like this huge relationship with your dog and have an Instagram page and think that it had like an internal life. You just kind of like, that's my dog. And and he might come along on this on this time traveling experiment. So unwilling to feed his dog himself, he builds a giant robot contraption so then that he could cut canned food for his dog. And then just dump it on a plate like the dog's like in a penitentiary. Strike one. Strike two. Experiments with time travel with this dog. Eh, if this doesn't work, what do I care? It's a dog. I'm going bad dog owner for uh, for Doc Brown. And frankly, I don't uh, I don't blame the dog, Einstein, for uh, not warning him about the Libyan terrorists. You said, you know, warn your master. I think the dog's like, fuck that guy. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Maybe he deserves more chewies on my rating then. Do you think the um, Einstein is pro-Libyan terrorist? Like he goes that far? I think like if the Libyans wanted to take him, I think he would have went with it. He would have been like, maybe I'll at least get fed. Um, Can I, I ask another you another do- question related to Doc Brown? Yeah, I have another one after yours. I think that we accept this now because... I don't know if you guys watch Rick and Morty, but Rick and Morty is obviously really inspired by Back to the Future and the characters and the professor and the or the scientist and the younger guy. But what the fuck is going on with Marty hanging out with Doc Brown? That is just really creepy. Yeah. So this is this also is the era of the Karate Kid and Daniel San, Mr. Miyagi, and relationships of lifelong bachelors hanging out with kids in high school. <laughs> Which now would just be flagged in five seconds. Yes. The thing that's weird is that Daniel is new to town. So it makes sense that he doesn't have a crew yet. And then he he hooks up with this guy who's teaching him martial arts. Marty, while his family is on tough times, has a really cool girlfriend and is like in bands. And you'd think he would have some friends, but it, it doesn't seem like he has any. It's just he has Claudia Wells and then there's just Doc Brown. He has no car and his best friend is this old creepy scientist and Claudia Wells is like, I'm in. <laughs> that five foot five guy. I'm the locking five him foot down. five guy who keeps grabbing onto people's bumpers and skating yeah. around town. Yeah. Who's leering at every other girl in my school and doesn't have a car. I'm, I'm, lock me up. Uh, <laughs> I added it. My other Doc Brown question was Doc Brown just lifelong bachelor, like secretly getting it in out there, asexual or just gay? What would you What would you pick out of the three? Was Doc Brown gay? He was married to his work, married to science. Married to science. Yeah, we need him for the coronavirus. You know, we need that kind of ingenuity right now. Early porn, like huge porn collection from the late 70s. <laughs> what? Doc Brown. Bill, I just want to hear you say Doc Brown, legendary stick man. <laughs> <laughs> Legendary porn collector. Uh, Doc Brown. Brown's like, Marty, I've got every video cassette 
a poem by Gerald Damiano from the late 70s <laughs> in every wee magazine that's ever been made. Uh, Doc uh, Brown, what a fucking weirdo he was. Uh, all right, my, I have one more unanswerable question. Can can a person be at the same location in in two different versions of himself? What's the example that you're using in the movie? Is the at the end of the movie, Marty yeah. goes back, but he's also there and he's watching himself. Can that actually happen? Have you actually wrapped your mind around that? Well, it's a big it's a big plot point in two. This this comes up frequently where he's observing himself doing things when he goes back to back to the future. And I wanted to ask you guys if you thought we should or could do two, because even though two isn't as good of a movie, it's probably a much more fun movie to talk about in a lot of ways because of the sports almanac, but because of the kind of question that you're asking, Bill, which is like, you know, the the this broke my brain aspect of two is so intense and yeah. fun to unpack that it's all about like alternate realities, temporal loops. Like the, the dog is named Einstein for a reason. Cause a lot of this movie is based on a lot of the speculative writing of Albert Einstein and his ideas about time travel. It, there's a deleted scene where doc Brown shows up and watches himself watching porn <laughs> that they were like, this is too dark. It's fucking weird. We got to get rid of this. <laughs> but <laughs> a strange guy that doc brown but this brings up sort of the also a larger question that's actually been uh it's been kicked around recently because james gunn the director of, of guardians of the galaxy had uh, a tweet like a couple of weeks ago where he was essentially like here's the here's my biggest issue with back to the future how do marty's parents not recognize him 30 years later you know when he is that age that he is when he comes back to 1955, how would they not know? Like, wait, how come our son looks exactly like Calvin, who is the guy who hooked us up at the enchantment under the sea dance. And I think people tried to explain it away in a bunch of different pseudoscientific ways, but essentially Bob Gale was like, think back to when you were 17. They only know Calvin Marty for eight days. Can you really remember somebody from 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 30 years ago that you only knew for a week. Now, I I take his point. I do think that if the intensity of the relationship was the way it was, I would never forget that person. You know what I mean? But that has been like one of the biggest time travel questions posted this movie. Sounds like we should do it as a flawed rewatchables. I mean, if we did draft day, we could do back to the future too. Sure. I would say it's a lot better than draft day. Having just rewatched it. It's really good. It just doesn't stand up to the original. Who won the movie, Sean? Gosh, I made this huge case for Zemeckis, but I kind of feel like it's Michael J. Fox. I also vote for Fox because of the backstory of how wrong this movie could have gone in the wrong hands. And exactly a recurring theme of the rewatchables that we've hit again and again, how much luck you need with this stuff. And if Sidney Scheinberg, whatever his name is, had been like, no, fuck you. I'm not doing the three million. Make it work with Stoltz. And you don't have the comedy and the physical stuff. And all, I, I just don't think it's as big of a movie. I think I think he ends up getting criticized, not like at a Sofia Coppola in the Godfather 3 level, but it's he probably becomes the thing people point to. Like, eh, you know. What well, I think, just Chris? think it winds up being more of a, I, I, there's a world in which this is like a bunch of sci-fi movies that, teenage sci-fi movies that came out in and around this time period, like Explorers or something like that, where it's like people like it, people, maybe it's even a cult classic, but it doesn't have like the, 
uh, paradigm shifting impact on culture that Back to the Future did. I, I think Fox is the person who wins the movie. He just noses out Huey Lewis. That's a good point. Yeah, they because they luck out with Huey Lewis too. Yeah, because that easily could have been like Thomas Dolby you know, like, <laughs> <laughs> or Howard Jones. <laughs> Just goes rock and roll. Oh, Back to the Future. It's on Netflix now. It's 35 years old. It's still fucking awesome. Thanks to uh, State Farm. Thanks to Chris. Thanks to Sean. We will see you on Wednesday on the Rewatchables with uh, Armageddon. So until then. <laughs> 